The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'm anticipating that God is going to bless our time together. And uh, we just got done with the prayer time, but I think it'd be appropriate for us to uh, pray again that God would keep his hand a blessing on us tonight as we study. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the word of God, which speaks with such great clarity. We thank you for the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to see its clear light and to follow its instructions. And Lord, as we consider the topic of church government, of, of polity, I pray that you would navigate our hearts and our minds. Help us, O Lord, to understand the the scriptures and put them into practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, For a long time, uh, as I've looked at this church, uh, before actually before I came uh, to be pastor of First Baptist Church, I believed uh, that the New Testament spoke and speaks very clearly about church government. and that the optimal form of church government is a plurality of elders. Elders are uh, men that are uh, raised up by God, entrusted by God and by the Holy Spirit of God with a role to play in the ministry, and that uh, in the pattern in the New Testament was consistently of raising up a group of these men in every locality. And that these would be recognized by the church. The church would see what God had done in their lives, be able to line up their lives, their character, their doctrine with the requirements in 1 Timothy Timothy 3, would be able to identify that these men met those qualifications and that they would then be entrusted with the leadership of the church. Um, I believed these uh, things in the context of uh, congregational polity as well in which the congregation had the responsibility to identify the elders, to see what God had done. Congregations don't make men elders. They recognize what God has done. They identify them, and then they're able uh, to, um, uh, to embrace their ministry in their midst officially. Um, they are also able to continue to assess their ongoing lives in a, in a passive way. Um, and uh, be certain that there's no sin, that they're behaving in a way uh, fitting uh, with their calling as Christians. Uh, so uh, even elders are subject to church discipline in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, I say in a passive way because, you know, I, I don't think it's loving for anyone to be saying, I'm watching you, all right, all the time. And if I ever see you mess up, I'm going to be on you. I mean, that's, that's just not loving. That's not what we do. But we just, like Bereans, we're just noticing uh, if the scriptures are being faithfully handled, if the life is godly, etc. Uh, and if, if all of those things are in place, then the congregation's responsibility is to submit gladly to their spiritual leaders, follow them gladly, and be grateful that they're there doing that ministry. And well, they should be. If you want to see a whole book devoted to the people of God in the absence of any godly leadership, that's the book of Judges. Just read it and see how it looks. All right, I really think the theme of the book of Judges is the failure of the Levites to instruct the people of God in the law of Moses and to live it out. Um, It's just a mess. It's a total mess. And as a result, there's constant invasions and there's constant problems and all that. It's just mayhem. That's problems. And so therefore, it is good for the church to see elders as the gift of God um, uh, to them. Now, obviously, it's a bit awkward for me to say that because I am an elder, but I'm not speaking as an elder per se. I'm just speaking in an absolute sense of how they should be viewed. Um, over the last uh, number of months, five months or so, a small committee was working on uh, replacement bylaws for this congregation to assess and to consider and act on, and that process is finished, and that's why we're at this point now where I'm going to be preaching two sermons beginning this coming Sunday and then the next Sunday on the issue of church polity. I'm beginning this class uh, tonight, and I would urge you to, uh, to notice perhaps some brothers and sisters who might have the leisure to come on Wednesday evenings who aren't here yet and urge them to come. Um, because I think this is an important time in the history of our church. My desire is once the church has uh, the final time to vote on changing its uh, operating documents, that there'll be really nothing left to do except vote. There'll be uh, all the discussion that needs to happen will have happened. People will have read all the pertinent scriptures. They will have prayed it through. If they have some objections or some concerns, they will have had a chance to voice them. I want to do all of that. 
Um, so in order uh, for that to happen, it's best for us to be here and for us to be together considering the word. And if you can't be here on any given time, I'm grateful to the ministry of Eric uh, Kaufman as he uh, tapes these things and you can listen to it on the internet. Uh, so just stay up with it if you would. Um, but uh, my desire is to see us move toward a plurality, plurality of elders because I believe it's biblical and I think God's going to bless it. It's not because I think that if we don't do it that we'll be under a curse of God or nothing good will happen or any of that. It's just because I think it lines up best with Scripture and I'm excited, um, excited uh, for it. Um, so what I'd like to do uh, tonight is I'd like to begin with just a general discussion on the topic of authority and submission in the church. And these verses, and this uh, was taken from a document I did uh, some time ago on, on the question of gender and authority. Uh, we, at that point, many of you were here and many of you were not, uh, were considering the question of women as deacons and our understanding of deacons at that point uh, and really up to this present time as somewhat spiritual leaders in the church. Um, uh, which I have always put a caveat that I did not think that that was ultimately the best way to look at deacons biblically, but that's where we were at that point in the history of the church. Now, hopefully, we're at a different point and we're able to get that squared away. But uh, I thought it would be best uh, in the question of gender and authority to begin with the issue of authority, not with the issue of gender, and try to find out what authority is in the church and how it should be uh, uh, wielded. And so I'd like to start with this. On the cover of this orange cover, you see a picture, of course, of the foot washing. And... Um, you know, that's, a, I think, an important picture for us to keep in mind. Um, Jesus there, after he washes his disciples' feet, um, he, he makes this statement that I've quoted here. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Jesus getting down and washing feet didn't make him any less teacher or Lord. As a matter of fact, in some ways, he, it made him the, the perfect teacher and the perfect Lord in God's, uh, God's kingdom. Because in, in this way, he's showing that all uh, God-ordained authority is servant authority. It's the way that God is. God meets the needs. He opens his hands and satisfies the needs of every living creature. That's what God does all the time. That's what it's going to be up in heaven. There will be a, authority and submission in heaven. Can you believe that? It's not part of the cursed world. It's a good thing. It's a marvelous thing to have God as a king. As John Piper put it, God is the gospel. That's where we're heading. We get to see him on his throne and we get to celebrate that and we'll be free forever from any inkling of rebellion against that. We'll be so delighted to be uh, bowing before the throne. We're not going to be hesitating. We'll be done with that satanic rebellion for good. We were duped as a race. We were tricked. All right. We were lied to. We believed it and we've been polluted by it and we are getting a thorough education in the knowledge of good and evil, not just from the tree, but from history and everything else besides. Oh, well, I'd be glad to be done with that. Amen? Amen. All right. And when we get done, we know what we're going to find. We're going to find a throne. Still be there. <laughs> it's been there all along. It's never moved. And we'll just be delighted to be back under that uh, throne and, and serve him. And it says in Revelation 22, verse 3, his servants will serve him. And that's a wonderful thing. So uh, Jesus uh, was teacher, he was Lord, he is teacher, he is Lord, and there he is washing feet. And so I guess for me, I, I want to begin by just saying we should embrace the concept of authority and submission. Embrace it. It is the reality of the universe. It's what John saw when he went through that door in Revelation 4. And he goes upward and he goes through that door and he sees a throne and someone seated on it. That is the reality of heaven. And so for us, authority is the center, God's authority, the, uh, the king. But here, um, we also see how he uses his authority to the benefit of those that he rules, that he leads. And so that's something to keep in mind. So when we come to that question, as we were working on the document, and one of the statements in the document is that the congregation should receive elders as gifts of God, and so they should. But it was appropriate for there to be a balancing statement. The elders should see themselves as servants of the people. All right, so basically, it's got to do with the mutual uh, opinion or disposition of how you see them. That the elders are gifts is clear from John, uh, uh, sorry, from Ephesians chapter 4, in which it says, He gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Okay, rewind the tape. It was he who gave some to be pastors. All right, just removing all the words. If he gave them, then they are what? 
gifts. There you go. All right. And there's the concept. So the idea is that they are a godly pastor group, a godly group of pastors and elders are gifts of God to the church and they should receive them as such and treasure them. Meanwhile, the pastors, uh, elders should see themselves as servants in this pattern. That's a, the, the direction we're heading. That's our goal. That's where we want to head. So let's begin with the, uh, the question of authority and submission in God's universe. And the basic idea I want to get across here is that God, the king, the creator of the ends of the earth, the ruler of all things, um, delegates his authority to created beings. He delegates it. He upholds their authority over those who are to be subject to them. And to add some words that aren't here, he holds the, those that receive the authority accountable for what they do with it. That's a basic idea. God, the king, delegates his authority to created beings, upholds their right to exercise that authority and will assess what they do with it. That's a key concept, and we just need to get our arms all around that and celebrate it and be excited about it. Uh, let's start with the creation and the fall in Genesis 1. Uh, we have all of these spheres of influence that God sets up. They're like kingdoms and kings. Genesis 1, um, you know, day 1, day 2, day 3, he sets up these realms, basically, these areas uh, in which uh, there's going to be some activity, some operation. You've got the sky and you've got the sea and the dry land and all that. And then in day four, he creates the sun uh, to rule over the day. That's the language used. And he creates the moon to rule over the night. We as human beings should keep ourselves in our place. We were put to rule over the earth and the creeping, crawling things on the earth and the four-footed creatures and all that. We have no authority over the sun. Let's keep that in mind, okay? God set it up there in the sky to keep us in our place. What can we do to the sun? Seriously. Can we send up a thermonuclear rocket? It's like the sun does thermonuclear explosions all the time, okay? Not impressed. So, I mean, it wouldn't even get close. It would just burn up. We can do nothing to the sun. And this is just a good a picture of God, really, in that, that regard. But uh, God delegates to the sun uh, authority, so to speak, you know, in a sort of a metaphorical way over the the uh, day and he delegates the, the moon to rule it says over the night and 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 then there's man created in his image let us create man in our image and let them rule you see that so that's delegated authority he gives two human beings a right to rule uh over the earth the sky and the seas then in genesis 2 uh, we have a kind of a detail of creation in which adam was created first uh, there was a time that he was alone uh, without a woman uh, he cannot fulfill his, uh, uh, what they call the cultural mandate. He cannot fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it by himself. God has made us interdependent so beautifully. Um, but he did create Adam first and he did give him some commands and he gave him a, a role to play and he did that for a reason. It wasn't accidental. And later uh, when we you know, address the question of women as elders, uh, etc., um, we go back to 1 Timothy 2 and to creation, to, to the Apostle Paul, and behind Paul to God, it was significant, the order of creation. So he created Adam to be head uh, within his own marriage, head over his wife, certainly, because there's a pattern of marriage there. But he also plays a unique role in all of human history. He's the first human being there is. He's the father of us all, you know, biologically. And so uh, he is our head as well. And he represents us at the tree. Uh, did it poorly, but in, in, in him we sinned, in him we fell. And so there's that role he upholds. And every human being that's born, he never, God never forgets that. This is a child of Adam. We are born in his likeness and in his image and under his curse. And so that's just God's consistency. He just upholds that role. Uh, thanks be to God, that's not the last Adam there was. Amen? Uh, there was a second Adam, and in him we are born again, and we will live forever. And as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we will also bear the likeness of the man from heaven, and we will be there eternally. But there is Adam with the role, uh, head of uh, his wife and also head of the entire human race. Then, uh, in Genesis 3, we have the great tragedy of sin. But sin should be understood uh, primarily in these terms of rebellion. It is rebellion. What happened was rebellion. Adam rebelled against God. God gave him a clear command. But from that tree, you must not eat or you will surely die. And Adam ate from that tree. He rebelled against God and he died. And so this is rebellion and we must see it, uh, that he joined, I believe, Satan in his rebellion against God's authority. All authority in heaven and earth, therefore, is ultimately God and sin must be seen as rebellion. Now, behind the scenes, we have to go to later books in the, in the Bible. Uh, we have 
uh, spiritual beings, angels, uh, in various orders that we don't fully understand. There's all kinds of interesting creatures in the heavenly realms, you know, the four living creatures, and there's, you know, cherubim and seraphim and all that. We don't really fully understand all the orders of being that there are in the spiritual realms. We do know that Satan is organized in powers and principalities and all that kind of thing. Um, but in the invisible world, there are these spiritual beings, and they also are arranged with a, an authority structure. We get that from this interesting word in Jude 9, archangel. The uh, prefix arch uh, in the Greek means ruler. Archon is a ruler. And so Michael, the archangel Michael, is a ruler angel. What's interesting is I didn't quote the whole thing there in, in, in Jude 9, but it, that's talking about his encounter with Satan over the body of Moses and he, how he wouldn't bring a reviling accusation but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And it really had to do there with how these false teachers were slandering authority and how even Michael didn't slander Satan because Satan had a certain intrinsic authority. Now, he's going to get hugely judged by what he's done with it, <laughs> hugely. But uh, at any rate, the point of the matter is that God upholds the authority of spiritual beings. And so there's this ruler angel. And the elect angels, the uh, good angels who didn't rebel, they didn't join Satan in his fall, they don't have any problem with, with Michael being an archangel. They're not struggling with that. They're not covetous of it. The, the angels that would have been covetous of a higher position, they fell. They were thrown out of heaven. They, that, angels did have that capacity, but they uh, joined Satan in his prideful, grabby, anti-authority rebellion, and they got thrown to earth, demons. The angels that are left are delighted in, in the archangel Michael's authority. They're not struggling with it. They don't have problems with it. And so there is authority given to spiritual beings, and it's upheld. So the point I'm basically, point I'm making here is that God gives authority to created beings he delegates it to them um, we also have household authority in ephesians five and six actually just uh, says six there but it's chapter five and six already mentioned that husband is the head of the wife uh, we talked about this recently as i was preaching through colossians uh, but there is definitely an order set up within marriage and the pattern was set up way back in genesis chapter two um, despite the fact that the world out there has all kinds of problems with it we christians know better uh, we're not struggling with it. We recognize that submission to God-ordained authority is delightful. Uh, Jesus submitted to his parents. Uh, it, didn't, it wasn't a struggle for him, even though they were imperfect beings. Yet it says that he was submissive to them. And so we recognize that uh, it is right for us to submit to created beings, even though they be imperfect, even though they be sinful. And so what wife doesn't know that intimately about her husband? He is not a perfect man. Let me tell you what he, she ought not to say. All right, because we might be moving into gossip and slander at that point. But the fact is, she knows full well that he's not a perfect being. And yet, she must submit to his authority. She must submit because he is the head of the wife. It's not that he ought to be the head of the wife. That's not it. It's not, it's not something that he ought to live up to. It's not a command given to him. He just is. It's just a fact. It's like the sun comes up in the east. It's just the way it is because God set it up that way. Now, he can be a really bad head or he can be a good head, but he is the head of the wife. It's just the way it is. Now, the Bible tells us we should be a Christ-like head. And Ephesians 5 tells the husband very clearly what that should look like. Very hard to live out, but that pattern is there, and that's a pattern that we are able to live out by the power of the Spirit. But there is authority in the household. Similarly, there's authority between the parents and the children. Uh, God doesn't love the, the parents any more than the children. He delights in, in children. He delights in them very much, but they're in, under the authority of their parents while they live in their home. And so the parents have a, have a God-ordained authority. One of the big errors that we make, generally, I think, as, uh, speaking as Americans, I won't say that it's not an error that people from other countries make, but we especially tend to equate being, you know, our worth by what we can achieve or accomplish, such as things you can put on a resume. In other words, the more things you can achieve, the higher is your worth and value. And if you went through a windshield and became a quadriplegic, your intrinsic value as a human being would great, be greatly diminished. Uh, so you have these euthanasia kind of arguments, et cetera, that, that basically this person is of little value anymore because they can't do anything. That's utterly false. Our value comes from having been created in the image of God and having been recreated by the power of the Spirit as children of God. That's where it comes from, and nobody can take that from us. Nobody can. So we've got to get rid of that weird conception that we have. Uh, we are worth something because we are in the image of God and because we're in the image of Christ, made new in Him. That's where our worth and value comes from. And therefore, it does not come from whether you're pushing a mop or, as I am right now, standing up and, and teaching. It has nothing to do with that. Nothing. 
uh, our worth and value is not is not tied to that at all. And so I will be worth the same when I'm, as I say to my children, old and decrepit in the nursing home and they come and look after me. They said they might come and look after me. Just, we joke about that. But anyway, um, I will be worth every bit as much then as I am now. It has nothing to do with what I can achieve. And therefore, we have to get rid of those kind of performance ways of thinking, feminism and other things like that, I think really suck the life from the human beings that take them in because you, you just, you're always on some performance thing and you never measure up. So there is authority, and God set uh, parents in authority over children. He set masters in authority over slaves. We discussed all that as I preached through Colossians. There's also the issue of governmental authority. If ever there's a good example of how God doesn't love the one more than the other, etc. I mean, many times governments throughout history have been not utterly pagan, utterly pagan. Um, Romans 13 uh, makes it very, very plain. Everyone must submit himself uh, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority is, except that which God has established. There is no authority except that which God has established. In other words, an authority that God didn't establish is no authority at all. Do you see that? I mean, just turn it around. That's what it means. So if there is authority, if it's really there, it's because God set it up. And to rebel against it is to rebel against God. That's something we just have to accept. I am not the issue with my children. I never have been. The issue is God who put me here. And so if you can't submit gladly to my parental authority, your problem is with God. Conversely, there are, it seems, you know, false forms of authority that really are satanic in their origin. God hasn't set them up. And we have to be able to discern between them, etc. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authorities or rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. We're teaching on, in our home fellowship through the book of Daniel. Very, very good example of a right uh, handling of, of authority, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar commands that they fall down and worship this nondescript gold obelisk or whatever it was. I mean, really, it's pretty naked, transparent attempt to just grab the souls of all of his people and say, you just fall down and do this, whatever you say. It's just sheer raw power and authoritarianism. Well, they're not going to do it because it would do, violate one of the Ten Commandments. They won't do it. And so they end up getting thrown into a fiery furnace. My favorite moment happens after the angel uh, comes, perhaps the angel of the Lord, and they're walking around unbound and unharmed in the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar is greatly interested in that phenomenon. Never seen anything like that in his life. He said, didn't we throw three men in the fire? Yes, O king, of course we did. Well, how is it that there are four men walking around unbound and unharmed? You know what he did next? He gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a command. He gave them a command. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, come forth. Now, here's the thing. One of the things you learn in government is if you make a law, it better be enforceable, okay? So how is he going to enforce that command? Suppose they had said, why don't you come in here and get us, all right? Come on, come on. Uh, he would never be able to do it. He could send a 1,000 soldiers. They'd never be able to get them out of there. All of them would be incinerated, right? Is that what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? No, because the command wasn't contrary to the will of God. So they came out. They were humble. They were submissive, you see? So there is a right way and a wrong way to submit to uh, governing authorities. But the bottom line is they've been established by God. And so we must submit if we can. And so that's, that's the issue. God upholds the right of governments to rule, to tax, even in April it's coming up, to judge, to punish their subjects, all of the above. Now, when we come to uh, the issue of authority, one of the key texts for me is Matthew chapter 8, the faith of the centurion. All right, you remember this story. A Roman centurion sends a messenger to Jesus saying, Lord, come. And, you know, my servant is at home paralyzed, terrible suffering. Jesus says, I'll go and heal him. You know, um, the centurion says through the servant. And by the way, you have to put all that together because it's in Luke that he goes to a servant. And Matthew goes directly. It's quite interesting that way. And Matthew really totally imbibes the spirit of the text saying, if the centurion sent a servant, it's like the centurion was there himself. It's really quite a fascinating thing. It's the only way to put it together and, and maintain inerrancy. But he's, he's, he's arguing through this, or he's, he's advocating through this servant. He said, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell that one, go, and he goes, and this one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Basically, he's saying, I'm a middle-level manager. I've, I'm up, I've got people above me, and I've got people below me on this chain of command. This is what the Roman Empire did better than anyone, was that authority. 
The, em the emperor didn't need to come to Palestine. He just needed to command his men who were in charge of that region of the world, and they would give suitable other commands, and down it would go. And eventually it would get to this centurion, and he'd know what to tell his hundred men. And it just worked that way. That's the way an empire works. And so basically this Roman centurion takes what he's learned in everyday life and he applies it to the spiritual realm. Does Jesus rebuke him? No, he doesn't rebuke him. He commends him. He says, I've never found anyone in Israel with such great faith. What was the essence of this man's faith? What did he see? When he looked into the invisible spiritual realm, what did he see there? A chain of command. He saw authority. And Jesus is like, you got it. Right, absolutely. You got it. And I don't need to come. So I will just give the word. And uh, it's just incredible. And, and he's not upset about it. He just accepts it. It's just the way it is. He's happy about it. Now, here's the question we have to ask ourselves, okay? Because sin is all over this whole thing. It's everywhere, all right? We're, let's say we're, we're all in the middle and we've got people above us and people below us, all right? How does sin mess the whole thing up? What's the disposition we sinfully take toward those in authority over us? What, what, what disposition does sin force us to there? Rebellion. rebellion. And how does that rebellion demonstrate itself let's say in the common american workplace do you quit your job maybe but probably not <laughs> all right what do you do instead of quitting your job huh you could go on strike that might be one thing don't do it uh, you know what about your mouth do you do anything with your mouth grumble complain moan groan gestures facial you know after he leaves that kind of thing you know i mean there's just all kinds of ways it crops up all right i don't want to be under you or as the four-year-old said famously, you're not the boss of me, but actually you are, which really frustrates me. So I'd like to say, you're not the boss of me, but you are, but I'm going to have to, you know, there's just this murmuring going on to those above. What about those below? How does sin take over there? What happens there? What are Oppression, tyranny. We become little dictators. You know, we like to get our, you know, Nuremberg rally and have everybody salute us. You know, we're, we're king top dog. How satanic is that? It's, but, that but we do it. And so we've got to turn the whole thing around, the whole thing around. Those in authority over us, we, re we, we respect and accept as gifts of God, delighted they're there, pray for them that they do their jobs well, etc. Glad that they're there so we don't have anarchy and we don't have the book of Judges and all that. Glad for them, submitting gladly if we can to anything they say. And we usually will be able to. It's very rare that those authority figures tell you to do something that violates the word. Very rare. All right. And those below us, well, you've got the foot washing there on the front. That's what you do. You take that authority, you don't abd abdicate, you don't say, I don't have authority, that wasn't really given to me, you wash feet with it. So that's how grace heals this whole thing. That's how, how it heals the whole thing, okay? Any questions about authority generally before we get to authority in the church? These are just excuse me, general rules about the concept that God delegates authority to created beings. Any questions about that? Susan. does God... Um Oh, there's all different kinds of answers to that question. In some cases, um, you know, yes, just to, just to him, but not usually. Like I, as a parent, you know, there are laws against abuse and, and other things, so I don't have absolute tyrannical authority over my children, etc. Um, so that's, you know, that's a, that's a, a good question. You know, but uh, the bottom line, I mean, you look at the master-slave commands in, in Colossians and Ephesians, the key thing is the master needs to remember he's going to give an account to his master for what he does. And that's the key, the ultimate thing. So, Any other questions? Authority and submission generally. Let's look at authority and submission in God's church. We should not imagine, therefore, that the church has no authority structures. The church does have authority structures, and they're set up. First of all, let's recognize that Christ has the supreme authority. All right? Uh, to him was given the name that is above every name, okay? You want to be number one in the church? Well, you can't, okay? That's done because no one will ever serve as humbly as Jesus. And the rule for, for greatness is humility. It's the downward journey. Nobody has gone down as low as Jesus and nobody ever will. So he gets the highest place, the name that is above every name. That's already taken. You can't have it and you shouldn't want it. And you, and you as a Christian are glad to ascribe it to Jesus. His is the first place. To him be the honor and the glory. So Jesus said very plainly in Matthew 28:18, all authority in heaven and on earth, what? Has been given to me. Now this is an amazing statement. The word all is amazing and the word given is amazing. All right? 
What does the word all mean? All authority in heaven and on earth. What does that mean? Jim, what does that mean, all? It just means that he has it all. I mean, there's nothing outside of his authority. He's under authority. He's the highest there is. Highest authority there is, is Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth. But what about the given? Has been given to me. What does that teach you? Is Jesus a man under authority? Well, he certainly was in his time on earth. There's all kinds of debates about whether he still is in the Trinity now. But, but you know, in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a sense that, that Jesus reigns over all things. All of his enemies are made a footstool under his feet. And he kind of wraps up the universe and gives it to God so that God may be all in all. So, you know, I, I think this is a continued mentality that Jesus has. is all authority is given, given, given. He doesn't do anything apart from his Father. Ultimate authority is the Father's, therefore. And so there it is. Jesus has that ultimate authority. Christ, therefore, specifically is said to rule over the church. The church is Christ's. He has the right to rule. So, therefore, it says in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So that's Jesus's absolute authority over the church. Notice, by the way, actually, if you read the language carefully, he has absolute authority over everything. All right. Not just the church. It's just that his authority is for the benefit of the church. That's about the way I read it. He is sovereign over pagan kings for the benefit of the church. He rules over everything, but he definitely does rule over the church. He's the head over the church because it's his body and he's the head. Or again, Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. You know, never forget that picture of Jesus walking the resurrected Christ walking through those seven golden lampstands in Revelation 1. The lampstands represent local churches, each of them with a name, the church of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those churches, he walks among them. And it's such a picture of Jesus' authority to rule and to reign and to move through the churches and to, and, to, and to rule over them and do what he needs to do in each local church. He's tending the churches. That includes this one. I mean, those churches were, were probably smaller than this one. You know, and Jesus cares about this local church. He's ministering here. And so he has the authority over the local church. The mark then of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is glad obedience to his commands. That's the essence of our salvation. We get to be gladly obedient to Jesus again. Now, that's it. We get to be brought back under his authority. We get to delight in his kingly rule. That's the point. So Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, You'll obey what I command. So it's an essence of love. Or in Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I really cannot think of the word yoke any other way than kingly authority, that Jesus is the king. You look up the word yoke and especially the book of Jeremiah talks about the yoke of the king of Babylon and how long the nation's neck will be under that yoke, etc. Well, his yoke wasn't easy and his burden wasn't light. That was the king of Babylon, all right? But the yoke, the yoke represents his right to rule. It represents him as king. And what is Jesus inviting you to do here concerning that yoke? Submit. Take it. Take it gladly. And here's the king asking you to do it. <laughs> How gentle is that? He's like, please put your neck under my yoke. And if you do, you'll find rest for your souls. How many of us Christians can testify that when we somehow mysteriously take our neck out from under Christ's yoke, we lose rest for our souls. It's called sin and we lose our rest. But when we submit gladly, we find rest and peace for our souls. We're glad to do it. Or again, the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What a big statement. Well, therefore, go and make disciples who are happy about that. Go and make people who are actually going to celebrate the fact that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that there actually is a throne and I sit on it. Go make people who didn't think like that before you, they met you, but when they hear the gospel and the spirit of God is there, they're converted and they're all of a sudden happy to have King Jesus ruling over their lives. That's what a disciple is, isn't it? All right, teaching them to what? To obey some of the things I recommend, okay? <laughs> is that what it says? No, teaching them to obey everything I command. I have commanded you. You know, Jesus isn't making recommendations here, all right? He is a king, and he has the right to command. And a disciple is somebody who is happy about that. And frankly, as sanctification goes on, more and more increasingly happy about that. Happier and happier. 
I, just the, all the problems in my life are when I'm not happy about Jesus' commands. His commands are not burdensome. They bring happiness and joy. It's sin that's burdensome. So that's the idea. Jesus rules, he reigns. All right, secondly, there's the authority of the word of God. The word of God has the right to command us. It has the right to tell us what to do. It is God's word to us, and we believe that. And, and to me, this is one of the essences of our whole journey here in polity. This is what's going to happen. It's, it's mostly going to be a journey in the word. All right, our Acts classes here on Wednesday nights between now and the middle of May, it's going to be a journey in the Word of God. My two sermons beginning this Sunday and then next week, it's going to be an exposition of the Word of God. We're going to submit to the Word of God. We want to know what it says about polity. Does it say something? Yes, it does. It does, in fact, say something. And what it says, it commands us. And so, therefore, we must do it. And if we read in Scripture that in every locality there was a plurality of elders and that they met these certain criteria and to them was entrusted the leadership of the church, we ought to do it. That's all. And so the word of God has that kind of authority. Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. But then, and here's the rub, human beings are actually delegated or entrusted with authority. And other human beings need to submit to that authority. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. We've already been through that generally. But it is true here in the church as well. There is an authority structure in the church. First of all, we have the apostles. Christ delegated his authority to human beings under his ultimate authority, the apostles. Uh, uh, it says in John 15, 20, uh, if they obeyed my teaching, Jesus said, they will obey yours also. That's a very interesting statement, isn't it? What is Jesus saying there? If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. Okay, because of who you are, because you're apostles, all right. What does it say about a disciple? A disciple of Jesus he has authority. That's right. And, and a person who's a believer in Christ recognizes that authority and is happy about it. Okay? We trust that Jesus has given it. And we're not resentful of it. It's like, I'll obey Jesus, but I'm not obeying you. You know? That's, that just doesn't make sense. If they would have obeyed Jesus, they'll obey the God-ordained or Jesus-ordained authority in the church as well. Happily to do so, you see. And that's, that's the idea here. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. Peter and the twelve apostles were given the keys of the kingdom, the authority to bind and loose. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I've always uh, felt, or I, from a certain point, understanding uh, the grammar here, the grammatical construction, I think it's better to say, um, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be having been bound in heaven. And whatever you bind on, on earth will be, or whatever you loose on earth will be having been loosed in heaven. Do you see? It gives heaven the priority which it should. These are, isn't Peter a demigod kind of ruling and deciding and everybody including heaven is trying to find out what he's going to do next. Rather, it's that Peter's under the authority of heaven, under the authority of Christ, and he's binding and loosing based on what Christ has told him to do. But the idea of binding and loosing is authoritative. It's, they're, they're, it's rendering judgments and decisions on matters. Okay. And again, Jesus uh, to the twelve, Matthew 18, 18, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, the idea is that in Matthew 16, he said it just to Peter, but in Matthew 18, he says it to the, to the apostles as a whole. All right, then Second Peter 3, 2, he says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. The command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. They're just a conduit of command. So the apostles have the right to command, but their command isn't their own. It's that Jesus is commanding. And you remember how Paul talks like this in 1 Corinthians 7, wrestling with various issues of marriage and all that. He says, now about such and such, I say this to you, not I, but the Lord. And in another, he says, I don't have a statement from the Lord, but I speak as one who has, you know, and he gives his credentials and then etc. They're equally binding. It's not like, oh, well, this is at a lesser, this is the lower level of canon right here because... Paul is the one who said that. We don't read it that way. It doesn't matter that there's no direct statement of Jesus in his three-year ministry on earth. It doesn't matter. He's an apostle. He's rendering a decision in the matter. That's what he's getting at here. And Second uh, John 5, And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one which we, have had, what, which we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. You know, we see the same thing, and I alluded to it recently in a sermon in Philemon, how um, you know, Paul writes concerning this uh, escaped slave Onesimus, Remember? And he says, although I could be bold and command you, I really am just going to come alongside and ask you. 
All right. He's saying, look, I could do this, but I'm not. I'm just, you know, there's a persuasiveness there, I think, that, that he gives. Now, both Peter and John had their authority to command or saw their authority to command as coming directly from Christ. They had no authority in themselves, but only as that which was coming from Christ. Now, a key moment in church history is this council in Jerusalem in Acts 15. All right. Here, there is an important theological issue, and that was whether the Gentile converts were going to be required to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. That's a big big decision right there they really have in their hands though they might not have known it fully at the time although i think some of them did really know it and understand it but they had in their hands the gospel itself and the book of galatians really makes that clear you know if you add circumcision to what christ has done to the cross you've destroyed the gospel you have no gospel all right well the question is there were a lot there was a bitter dispute about this very very uh, vigorous dispute and uh, some uh, Pharisees and, and, uh, that were claiming to be converts uh, uh, to Christ, etc., were advocating that they must be Jews. The Gentiles basically must become Jews, just like they always have. They need to be converts to Judaism. And then we can talk about them being Christians. But that's what, I mean, that's what it is. They've got to be circumcised. They've got to, be, they've got to become Moses. They've got to obey the, the dietary regulations, all of that stuff. And so how did they resolve this? Well, look what it says. Um, well, it doesn't, it's not printed on it, but I'll just tell you what happened. The apostles and elders, it says, met to consider this question. The apostles and elders. Who are the elders? Well, they're the leaders of the church. They're not apostles. They're not apostles. They were not among those eyewitnesses of Christ's life, etc. They were leaders of the church. And they were the ones that met to consider this doctrinal question. And uh, when they had resolved it, they wrote this letter, which I have printed for you in the outline here. Uh, Acts 15, 23 through 29. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. By the way, I've always thought it was fascinating, that expression. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I mean, that really is quite a bold statement when you think about it. But, you know, we need the us. Because we don't see the Holy Spirit. And so we need to believe that the Holy Spirit moves through people and speaks through people and acts in certain in space and time. And so when the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called, called them, probably he said it through a prophet, through somebody who is speaking on his behalf. So the Holy Spirit speaks. And so therefore it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And thanks be to God, it seemed good to us too. It's good to be in concert with the Holy Spirit, you know. So it's good that that seeming thing lines up okay and they they were led well at that moment by the spirit of god to not be legalistic in justification to not require the gentiles to uh, do anything the requirements that are listed here in this letter are interesting and i'm not going to take time to say why those things were required at that particular moment clearly more than that would be required of the christian lifestyle you're not free to murder for example you know, that's not in there saying, well, listen, it doesn't say in the letter, so we can murder now. You know, it's not that. Clearly, there are some specific things, I think, around Gentile religions and pagan cults and all that, saying this is what we want you to stay away from, okay? But here's the thing. The Gentile churches were expected to obey this. They were expected to obey the decision of the elders. And so it says, they traveled, as they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So there it is, and that's Acts 16.4. All right, Paul had the authority of an apostle. In 1 Corinthians 14.37, he says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. <laughs> There's the test of your prophetic gift. Acknowledge that I'm an apostle and the things I write are coming to you straight from God. And frankly, if you don't, then you're no prophet. <laughs> I mean, that's... And, and again, that's Paul. He's the apostle and he's speaking the truth. He's saying, you want to be a prophet, then you acknowledge that I'm writing the lord's command and again second thessalonians 3 4 through 6 he says we have confidence in the lord that you're doing and will continue to do the things we command in the name of the lord jesus christ we command you brothers to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us now this authority as i've already mentioned was persuasive and not coercive frankly if you look at acts 15 there's no pope there's no great leader of the church that gets up and says this is what we're going to do there's nobody like that Peter wasn't like that. He didn't play that role. Paul didn't play that role. 
they all seem to be about on equal footing. And this is what I picture in terms of plurality of elders. In a, in a local church, plurality of elders, those elders are all on equal footing, including the senior pastor. They all sit around the table. They all have the same right to speak to an issue. They all have the same uh, right to influence the final decision. They're all on equal ground. That's what I see in Acts 15. I know that, um, that James sums it all up and says, I think we ought to do such and such, but you don't get the sense even there that James was the top dog there in that group. I think it was just that he was the one that said, hey, let's do this. Let's write a letter, etc." Um, and so there was no single one leader there. The problem with many Baptist churches is that there is such a focus on the senior pastor, such a focus on his authority and his leadership. He may be the only vocational minister there. He may be the only one. And uh, there are no lay leaders uh, established. There are deacons that are there, etc. The thing, I think, is imbalanced at that point. Uh, John MacArthur, and I'm going to mention this in my sermon on Sunday, said uh, solitary leadership is, is uh, a characteristic of cults generally. Uh, not, gen- not characteristic of the Christian church. And so in Acts 15, we see a, a, a plurality of men who come together to make this decision. Uh, they come to this, this end. So um, Paul's authority is loving and persuasive. It's not coercive. Basically, truth wins. That's what it is. And, and the uh, leaders, the elders, uh, have the ability to persuade by truth and by scripture, not by their position so, so much. Yes? This is a singular or unique event and that it, things like this don't continually go on in the, you know, throughout history of the church, a gathering together and then a distributing back out. Yeah, I think, I think it's a very important point you're bringing up here because this was still in the era of the apostles, and the apostles have a role to play that no one else did from then on. I'm just saying, though, and I'm going to make this point in a moment concerning Timothy, that at some point those apostles would die, and that didn't mean that all authority died with them. That next generation had to have some leaders and those leaders were pastors. They were elders. That's what they were. They were not apostles. They did not play the same role because God gave the New Testament and the testimony of Christ through the apostles. That's how they came. The eyewitness, and I spoke about this on Easter Sunday. We have no access to the empty tomb except by the apostles. That's, what the, that's, the, that's the link that we have to the resurrected Christ is the apostles. So they play an utterly, James, unique role in redemptive history. The apostles did. So I would agree that. But yet, here it is in Acts 15, written for our edification, not just so we would know that so many centuries ago this is what they did, but also to see a pattern of the way that doctrinal issues would be resolved. And that is, I think there are some elements we can draw out even though we're not apostles. And namely that you have the elders of the church meeting to consider and to discuss and, and to come to consensus on a doctrinal issue. That's still with us, I think. All right. Um, second generation authority then, as I mentioned a moment ago, the same authority to command in the name of Christ passed on to Timothy who was not an apostle. He's just Timothy. They found him in Acts 16. You know, His mother was a Jewess. He was a convert. He was a good young man. He was trained under the master, being ready for this ministry. And the time came and he was ready. And though he was a young man, and it says, let no one despise you because of your youth, yet he was an elder, all right? And he was established in this role. There's a lot in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy about this. But 1 Timothy 4, 11 and 12, command and teach these things, you see? And so there's just an authority there. And, and for me, the authority is all about the Word of God. It's completely about the Word of God. It's not about a position. It's about what does the Scripture say? You're commanding based on... It's not command and teach, period. It's command and teach these things. Command and teach the Word of God. That's really what it is. Do not let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and purity. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, elders. Uh, let's come to a balanced understanding here. We've already set the ground for it, but let's go ahead and finish it. First of all, there is this language of over you in the Lord, okay? First um, Timothy, sorry, First Thessalonians 5.12. Now we ask brothers, uh, ask you brothers to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. That word admonish, nutheteo, from which we get that nuthetic counseling. They give a warning to you concerning sin. And so that's the issue, is, is, is bringing biblical truth to bear on a, on a weak area, on an area that might be an area of concern. Okay, so what disposition should the church have to those who do such a thing? All right, we ask you what? First Thessalonians 5, what is he asking, the Apostle Paul? Respect them, okay? And it describes what their lives should be like. They're hard workers. Um, they uh, are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Now, over you in the Lord, I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. So there's a kind of a hierarchy there, a sense of, 
you know, latitude or elevation. Somebody over me, somebody under me. I don't know that the emperor was taller than the centurion. That wasn't the issue. The issue is that he was over him in the structure of the Roman Empire. That's what it was. He had the right to give him commands. He had the right to lead him. So here, there is this issue of elders are over you in the Lord. And this is very much, I think, uh, connected with one of the words for elders, which I'm going to argue on Sunday. These are completely interchangeable. Pastor, overseer, slash bishop, and elder. These are completely interchangeable terms. I'll make that case on Sunday. But they're completely interchangeable. The word overseer is a, a literalistic English translation of episkopos, episkopos, to be overwatching. Okay, watching over. Okay, and so I get the image somewhat of that pastoral side of the pastoral, the pastor up on a hill looking down over the flock just so he can get a good view of what's happening, has a good perspective on the wolf that's coming like 100 yards away. And okay, we need to do something about that wolf that's going to be here pretty soon. A good perspective is the idea. It has nothing to do with lording. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right. Hebrews 13:17 Obey your leaders and submit to their authority they keep watch over you as men who must give an account um, obey them so their work will be a joy not a burden for that would be of no advantage to you it is of no advantage at all to a baptist church to run out its pastors on a regular pattern there's no advantage it hurts the church the church suffers in every way imaginable when it treats its elders like that all right and many baptist churches have done that and it's a damage to, the, to their own souls. It, it creates a hardness and a bitterness in those that were able to achieve it. They become arrogant and prideful and they're not, uh, they're not under any authority. They do what they want. It's a damage to those who just want a good solid preaching and teaching from the word of God, who wanted to be warned about sin and wanted healthy marriages. It just doesn't help anybody at all. And so the idea is you know, you're just sawing off the branch you're sitting on. God has set up a beautiful structure here. Why would you ruin it by a lack of submission? So again, I think the congregation is watching over the elders in one sense in a passive way just to be sure that they're not sinning. And the uh, congregation is the final court of appeal in all church discipline cases, including the elders. So you go to the congregation if the elder is, in, is, is sinning, is ungodly. Uh, but other than that, this verse obtains, and that is submit to them. All right, as long as what they're doing is biblical. And Bereans, yes, we are always taking what people are teaching and you must take it and line it up against uh, the scripture. And on those occasional cases, and if, if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Now that's a key issue. We can talk about it more later. If everyone around you is getting it and you're not, be quiet, okay? Because <laughs> it's possible you just need some more time to study or some, you, know, you can come to the elder and he'll give you more time or whatever, but it doesn't mean that he's wrong and you're right. It just means you don't get it yet, okay? It's not likely, however, the elder's going to lead contrary to the will of the entire congregation. That's highly unlikely because, again, it's going to be the Holy Spirit leading. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There's going to be a beautiful harmony between the leadership and the people. All right, that's the overview in the Lord aspect. By the way, notice in both cases, the leaders are plural. Now, we ask you, brothers, to respect those, not him who works hard among you, but those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. It's the plurality of elders there. Again, Hebrews 13, obey your leaders, plural. There's not just one. There's a group of them. All right, but the flip side, not lording it over. First Peter 5, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, etc. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So plurality of elders were to be an authority in every local church. They were to carry on the delegated authority from Jesus Christ, which the apostles had, though in a significantly different way. They were not to lord it over the people. They were to live as examples. The people were to submit to their authority and obey them in the Lord. One last verse I think is beautiful in uh, Matthew 20, verse 20, 20 through 28. You remember how um, James and John came and wanted to sit at Jesus' right and his left in the kingdom? Actually, it was the mother that came and asked, okay, getting mom to go do it. That's a, one of the shameful moments in church history. That's a real low moment there for James and John both. Sons of thunder, what happened to that? You know, I thought they were supposed to be courageous leaders and they're hiding behind their mom. I mean, what's happening with that? But at any rate, mom comes and says, grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right, the other at your left. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. He doesn't deny there's such a place. There is a place like that, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared by the Father. You know, I can't give that out right now. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> you want to find out? Though I'll tell you the principle by which those seats are given. 
Okay. By the way, the 10 got all indignant. They're all upset. It's like, man, I wish I'd thought of that. Where's mom when you should have gotten my mom? You should have done that last week. They, are, they have the inside track now on the right and left position. And Jesus calls them together and said, let's get this settled right here and right now. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So if there's a difference between servant and slave, it's pretty clear there. It's just got to do with how low you go. And when I preached on slavery, I said this is one of the great challenges of the Christian life is to really think like and act like a slave. That's just one of the hardest things we prideful people could ever do. It's just very hard for us to be treated that way, to live that way, to think that way. It's just very, very tough. But those that by faith can overcome, to them, they get the great positions in the future world. Okay, So that's how leadership should be done in, in the church. I left a few minutes for questions, and I'm happy to stay after and answer more. I'll try to leave more time. Any questions that we have? What do we need any more teaching for, right? We're all done. We're all set. Yeah, go ahead, Paul. Um, Paul was wondering if the overseers in 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 is, are at this or if it's a different word. Yeah, if, if, the, if you see the word overseer, that's, that's episcopoi, that, that's, and that's, that's definitely there. By the way, the word bishop is Old English for overseer. Be skiop uh, is basically like scope. Like to, to be over. That's where it came from. I was trying to wonder where bishop came from, but that's what it is. It's just an old English way of saying overseer. So all those titles, bishop, archbishop, all that. Yeah, go ahead. Do any of those Greek words have any suggestion of, of age? Like, like our word? Certainly elder. Presbyteros is, sometimes just means older men. Uh, sometimes it means elders in the church. So the idea there, and I'll mention this in my sermon on Sunday, but the word presbyteros gives a sense of experience, a sense of wisdom that comes from having lived in God's world. Although Timothy's example shows that it could come to a younger man. Uh, there are some that live many years in this world and don't seem to learn life spiritual lessons, sad to say. They may be Christians, but they're not spiritually mature. And there are others that have been brought through many things very quickly, and at a relatively young age, they could be elders. Really, it just has to do with spiritual maturity. Any other? Susan, one last one. I guess I'm wondering if there are some authority relationships that clearly there are some that we don't really have an option uh, to uh, get out of, if you will, and toward Christ. If you're married, you're, the Lord is going to be pleased to get out of that. Um, on the other hand, I'm thinking of the slave-master relationship where Paul says, if you have a chance, get your freedom. So it does seem like there are some authority relationships, at least that one, and maybe that's the only one, where there really is an option. Obviously, there's an option. You can choose to get married or not to get married in the world. So there is that option. But once you're in that authority relationship, the slave, hey, if you've got a chance, you be free. Right. So, you know, there is some... I don't think it works in the church, though. Because what does that look like practically in the Christian life? You have no one over you in the Lord? No one? No one to whom you're accountable? That's one of the reasons why I want plurality of elders, is so that I, I myself sit at, at, at a table of peers, and we discuss issues as peers. And I'm not over them, and they're not over me, and we, we just are peers and making decisions. And I, I hope you see in that my motive uh, is actually uh, trying to be more biblical so that this church can be everything that God wants it to be. Um, I just, as I look inward at my gifts and my abilities, there's not enough there to take this church where it should be. Not enough. I have part of the gifting that I think the Lord can use, but I think there are other gifted men that he's going to use as leaders. And so I guess for me, uh, yeah, you know, you, you don't have to be under the authority of a husband as a woman. That doesn't have to be the case. You sure don't have to be under the authority of a master because you could try to get your freedom. Um, I think it'd be hard to imagine somebody not under some governmental authority. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar did that for a while, but generally you get assassinated. Um, so, I mean, you're going to be under some authority there. There's no way to escape it. You can tell the federal government leave you alone, but they have an interest in your land no matter where you are. So um, long story short, there's no escaping that authority. But the, the thing is with Christians, you shouldn't want to escape spiritual authority. You should yearn for it because you know you're not done being saved. And you want people to hold you accountable and to show you the word of God and to, and to help you. And that includes spiritual leaders too. But that's a good insight. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this evening, this first study that we've had on, on elders and and. Uh, polity, and I just pray, Father, as we continue to learn more and more from your word, I just ask, Father, that you would give us insights um, 
give us a, a feeling of how this is going to work in our church, a practical uh, feeling of it. I pray that you'd, you'd just be leading us and guiding us. Help us, O oh Lord, to embrace and to delight in those things that you revealed from Scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.